My guest this week is a specialist in the psychology and the politics of denial. Whether it's about COVID-19, climate change, or the atrocities that follow a war, there's always a group of people who will defy the consensus and cling to a reinterpretation of the facts that are otherwise plain for everyone to see. We're not talking about healthy scepticism here, but a commitment to opposition that is irrational. On a very poor line locked up in our respective homes, I spoke to Dr David Hall, an academic with his finger in so many sustainable pies it's hard to know which to bite first. He's a lecturer at AUT, a contributor to business think tank Pure Advantage, and founder of sustainability consulting firm Mohoyo, and its newly, newly launched Climate Innovation Lab. He has written numerous books and reports, including the Climate Finance Landscape for the Ministry for the Environment, which formed much of its thinking behind the climate finance strategy and the recent BWB text, A Careful Revolution Toward a Low Emissions Future. I began by asking David what parallels exist between the reactions to COVID and climate change. And again, apologies for the quality of the line and the dog. There's certainly been some parallels in the response by some of the more flagrant denialists like Trump and the US and Bolsonaro and Brazil. I mean, they've both taken a um, incredibly reluctant stance towards COVID-19, um, not denying it outright, but at least denying their responsibility to act and you can certainly see some parallels in their approach, their kind of distrust of expertise, their distrust of science, um, and their sort of defensiveness around naked economic self-interest. Um, but I mean, I think it's worth keeping in mind the disanalogies as well between climate and COVID. I mean, the impacts of climate change play out on over a really long time period, whereas COVID is going to impact and, and have this sort of feedback in a matter of weeks. And so I'm not sure whether that denial can be sustained in the way that it is um, in regards to climate change. Uh, there's a wonderful line about lies and politics and the way that eventually lies will be defeated by reality. And I think you know, that's the problem with climate change, that it takes decades to defeat those lies by reality, whereas with COVID, it might take a matter of weeks. So, um, you know, at the time that we're talking, we haven't really seen the full effects play out in places like the US and Brazil, but um, presumably they will, and they, they could be quite shocking and quite impactful. I mean, I mean the way that it proliferates exponentially through the population, um, it's just taking off in the US and Brazil, but in lieu of some more decisive action, uh, the hospital systems will be overwhelmed soon. And I mean, that's already happening in some states. So, I mean, the, yeah, the, the impacts and the, yeah, the impacts of, of inaction are, are going to play out in much more in real time um, than they do in climate change. I mean, politicians can, can get away with doing nothing and the way that politicians have often focused their efforts on these long-term targets rather than, um, rather than immediate action, you know, that further sort of kicks the ball down the road. And so they're not held to account in a way, um, even, even their own 
climate policies are, are tied to these long-term objectives, which um, you know few politicians are around to be held to account to. So in that way, the just the temporalities, the way that um, the short-term nature of COVID and the long-term nature of climate change are quite different. Whether they're um, revising history and revising the facts as as they go. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it's too. It's a bit too early to tell you. I mean, you see a little bit of that going on, but um, I mean, I saw Bolsonaro today as is um, you know, he's not denying the the fact that COVID is spreading, but he said that we we should be facing it like men and not like children. So, you know, what he's projecting is this nationalist myth of um of sort of Brazilian masculinity and that and that it should be faced as a in, in a manner of machismo and um, and resoluteness um, which is you, you know he's playing to his audience of, of Brazilian machismo but um that doesn't necessarily help you when you're facing a uh, flu and there seems to be some evidence that men are more vulnerable to to the disease the COVID-19 than um than women are so again we'll see we'll see whether that macho attitude is is going to um resist the um impacts of the virus at all i i seriously doubt it i mean the the, the one other thought that i had when you sent that article through is is it, it comes back to this classic question of us trying to understand climate change by way of these different metaphors and Actually, disease and epidemiology is long, has been a long-standing metaphor for climate change and how we might think about grappling with it. Um, so it's quite easy in, a, in some sense to, to, to draw parallels between the COVID crisis and the climate crisis because we've actually long been thinking about the climate change crisis as a kind of a epidemi- epidemiological crisis, as a... As, as though it was a virus or a disease that we need to treat um, and we need to treat emissions in the same way that we treat a virus spreading. Um, yeah, I mean, and that's just the nature of climate change. It's such a complex problem. It, it avails itself to these metaphors, but they, they have their benefits and they have their, their limitations as well. Um, and I think it's just easy to see that it's easy to declare an emergency in a way that we have in New Zealand and in other countries in response to a disease because the disease sort of cuts straight to people's fears about their own um, personal safety and health in the, in the short term in a way which climate change just doesn't have that emotional impact. And, um, you know, while some people are trying to declare a climate emergency and, and, and draw that analogy close, you know, it's, it's difficult for, to make people feel that way. It just doesn't have that same sense of urgency. And so I think that just means we have to look for other strategies. It's just not going to work for immediacy. Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. 
This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. I would like to talk to you, though, today about climate change denialism, which is a very rough approximation of your PhD that you did at at Oxford University, right? And I know you're going to correct me because there'll be some technical reason why that's too superficial. But let's go with that. What motivated you to study denialism? Well, it's just this um, this this dilemma between the fact that the reality of climate change um, is becoming more and more apparent. The science was becoming more and more certain. The knowledge was becoming more widely held. And nevertheless, emissions kept creeping up. There was this puzzle. Why are we allowing this um, catastrophe, this slow motion catastrophe to occur if, if we've got all of those intellectual resources to prevent it? And so uh, my PhD was on the psychology of political decision making um, especially with a with an eye towards this problem of climate change um, and denial was just one of those subjects that came up as one of the major impediments for action I imagine that denial is a bit like a spectrum from uh, a, a, a you know, out, outright denial through to a sort of shoulder shrugging. Um, oh well, you know, too bad. Uh, is, would I would I be right? You know, is, does that capture the full Catholicism of denialism? Yeah, yeah, that's that that's a good point. Um, there's a wonderful book called States of Denial by a sociologist, Stanley Cohen, and he has a great classification of denial. And one of the distinctions. This is an old book, right? This is not. It, it, it is quite old. Yeah, book, yeah. Right? No, it was written more with um, with genocides and uh, apartheid and um, uh-huh. those sorts of social uh, problems in, in mind. Um, but it's nevertheless very relevant to, to the climate change denial. And, and he talks about at the far end, literal denial, where you just deny outright the facts. So you just completely um, deny that reality. I've got a quote here from one of the many emails I receive on this topic. It says, I haven't swallowed the climate change as real hokum. The data collected doesn't support it. The oceans haven't risen. Average temperatures have not have have dropped, not risen over the last 10 years. The Arctic isn't melting. Manhattan isn't underwater, etc., etc. So that's an example of literal denial where they're just denying um, scientific facts. But then there's interpretive denial, which is a little more subtle, where someone accepts the basic facts and accepts the basic reality but spins it in a certain way which absolves themselves from some of um some of that reality so a classic example is well you know science has uncertainty the you you know there's there's probabilistic elements here and so we can't really be sure whether it's happening or whether it's going to play out in the way that scientists say or the scientists don't all agree and there's no consensus so there's a there's a sort of a spin put on the facts Mm. as far as they are Mm. and then the 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 broadest example is implicatory denial where we accept the facts we accept the basic interpretation but we don't accept the implications that follow from that and uh-huh. I think we're all or, or most of us are probably guilty of this to some extent um, you know the facts of climate change are, are fairly 
widely held these days by a majority of New Zealanders and a majority of people throughout the world, but still we keep acting as though it isn't a reality. And so we're not really um, acting as if we fully absorbed the ethical and practical implications of the knowledge that we have about climate change. What's the connection with those three types of people with the book you just mentioned? So, so that's the classificatory scheme that he describes in I the see. book. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. And, and so, and so he's talking about the ways that, um, to some extent, you know, quite a lot of us are denialists, potentially denialists of just different types. And I think that's certainly true of climate change. That, um, you know, literal denialists are a, are a highly vocal minority, but but certainly a minority is quite a small number of people. Whereas interpretive denialists are. A, are more common but then probably the most common of all is is the majority of people who do believe in the basic facts of climate change but don't act as if they do. So it's a very human conundrum isn't it to uh, have to face change because that's what's implied by the facts of I don't know let's take you know not just climate change denial but you you said for instance the holocaust the facts were there for all to see, but they were unbelievable because they were so extreme, mm. and the extremity required action, didn't it? That it required required change. Is that what stops us? Is the is the what happens next? It is. I mean, these things are incredibly uncomfortable and discomforting forms of knowledge and the you know the true sort of psychological definition of denial is is that you acknowledge something but you repress it so it isn't the same as ignorance where you just don't know it isn't the same as miscomprehension or or difference of opinion Denial is when you acknowledge this reality, but defense mechani- mechanisms kick in to suppress, to displace, to to um, dilute, to underplay that reality. And and the reason that 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 happens is because you know accepting these realities is incredibly traumatic for a lot of our sincerely held values and our and our projects and our and our commitments. Um, the, the implications are, are, are distressing and 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 highly um, highly discomforting. I mean, we're going to certain, yeah, tell, certain tell ways of them. life need to be sacrificed yeah, uh, or, or or as you say, changed. Mm, and, mm. and change can be incredibly uncomfortable for people. Um, what are the changes? I mean, you know, I, 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 there'll be a million, but you know, uh, why are people uncomfortable with the implications? What are they uncomfortable with? Perhaps is a better question. There's, there's really no single answer to this because, you know, we, we have diverse beliefs and we have diverse values and the reality of climate change is, is upsetting to some of these values in a way that it isn't necessarily for others. So, you know, of, of the psychological literature on climate change belief, um, one of the strongest project predictors, if not the strongest predictor of of climate change belief is is one's political orientation, the the parties they vote for, um, the ideology that they that they are committed to, and so on. Um, these sorts of things have quite a strong effect. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, and what are they? What are those 
political affiliations that act as predictors of denial so attitudes? It's, it, it's, it's tricky because a lot of this research comes out of North America, um, which is highly polarised in a way that, say, New Zealand isn't so yes. much. Uh, and so there the effect is very strongly uh, on party lines. Right. So it's Republicans deny um, Democrats tend to tend to agree um, with the reality of climate change. Mm. Um, conservatives uh, tend, tend to deny. Mm-hmm. Progressives tend to accept the reality. Um, they're, they're absolutely not uh, complete um, correlations. You know, you know, the, there's there's certainly people on either side who flip the other way, but um, those are the those are the tendencies. Is there a gender or a socioeconomic element to this as well? In regards to gender, I know there is a a slight uh, correlation for women tending to accept the reality of climate change and being more motivated to act. Um, in regards to men, but I think it's it's fairly mild. Like most of those demographic uh, variables are a lot less significant than one might uh-huh. think. Is um, there a religious aspect to it? I couldn't say. Right. Yeah. There's nothing in the literature that that. There, there's certainly out. literature out there, but I but I just can't recall off the top of my head. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But, but but yeah. I mean I mean the the. The big reviews of this literature certainly says that politics is is the um, is the primary factor, and I yes. think for you know while we don't want to make generalisations around all conservatives because there have been a number of climate champions um, on the conservative end of politics, um, so so this is a broad brushstroke generalisation. Yes. It's not for everybody, yeah. but but nevertheless. There's a certain dilemma for conservatives around climate change that progressives don't face, mm-hmm. because on the one hand, if, if if we accept that conservatism is is a kind of a love for order, that's one um, way to describe. Um, yeah conservatism that there's a certain order there's a certain sense of tradition that one wants to preserve and uphold and champion yes and that is under threat by climate change because a lot of traditional ways of life and you know traditional ways of doing business and so on yes become impossible to do but there's a secondary threat as well that if we act uh, to avoid the worst of climate change, that'll also create massive change and disruption to order and tr- disruption to traditional ways of life. Whereas for the progressive, it's quite easy to want to avoid climate impacts. And because progressives usually want to change social institutions anyway, mm. there's something almost thrilling and exciting and reinforcing about this this opportunity to... Um, to embrace the possibility for innovation and social yes. improvement, um, and so and and you know the 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 worst case scenarios of climate change seem to vindicate some of the judgments about what's been wrong with um, the way that we run our economy as it is. So I'm just thinking of Naomi Klein. You know, this changes everything. It's a, a kind of a permission to upset the order of things, exactly. and, and particularly a sort of an anti-capitalist. Yep. view and and conversely so I want to try out a theory on you this is you know, sort of you know pop psychology developed in the heartbeat of intellectual Auckland Mount Albert um, that the idea of progress is so embedded 
and a conservative view and in a bit generally a business view that there's a lot of things we've done that have been successful in improving health and housing, uh, longevity, um, uh, education, wealth. Those things are working. You're saying those things all have to change. That that is this idea of progress under threat from um, climate change, and is that kind of one of the reasons? Do you think that it's so hard to accept? The sense that um, the status quo is delivering a lot of value, human value, and yes. um, yeah. Since the industrial revolution, I mean, you know, on every metric, human health, human education, exactly, wealth, it has improved. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean this step with capitalism. To me, this question touches on some of these debates around GDP and and wider understandings of value, because you know there is an argument that um, we're currently living through a period of of enormous wealth being created, especially in developing countries. That those levels of um, yes. absolute poverty uh, throughout the world, you know, global poverty is actually uh, reducing at the moment. The, the, those scales, depending on how you measure it, um, there's certainly it's it's a very complicated question there, which I won't won't get go too far down. But yeah, there is this challenge here that. Um, Climate change presents, uh, yeah, a, a threat to that understanding of of progress in terms of GDP and economic throughput um, and economic productivity, which is what GDP captures. But GDP, of course, doesn't capture these other things which are going on. Um, the so-called externalities uh-huh. uh, to our economic models, which um, come back to bite us in the end and 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 aren't external to everyone um they certainly aren't external to people down down river from pollution or yes. they aren't external to future generations who have to live with the consequences of a um of a warming climate and and all of the costs that 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 implies for them in terms of agricultural production and you know, you know disrupted crop yields yes. and, and reduced fish stocks and so on so so um there is this question now about whether we've been measuring progress in the right way and, uh-huh. and i think you know that there is a quite robust i mean in new zealand we're seeing this come through the well-being uh, approach to the budget and the um, adoption of the living standards framework uh, as a way of measuring success for government um, and that doesn't get rid of GDP entirely but it tries to bring in that more holistic perspective by bringing in environmental accounting yes. indicators and so on so that because all of that all that human progress has seemed to have come at a massive cost to the to the natural sphere the biosphere yeah um, and and we're looking at you know massive species loss um, you know collapse in ecosystems and you're saying if, if we actually counted that we would change our view on what progress is yeah and and one of the challenges as as the UK bank governor Mark Carney put it is that climate change is this tragedy of the horizons where the costs are certainly there, they're material, they're tangible, they're to some extent measurable and predictable, 
but they sit beyond the usual um, range of decision making, especially by um, you know business decision makers and policy makers and so on. They mm. they sit always those those decades beyond. Um, and and beyond the scope of the short term decision making that we've tend to have, so 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 we keep on making these decisions that don't account for those fuller costs. I'm imagining that there's a group of denialists who will never be convinced, and in some ways, who cares? Um, nature will take its course. I mean, literally, will take its course for the bulk of that group uh, I can't remember the term that you gave them the third group what was the implicatory denial yes and they're in denial because they are concerned about the implications of what they've just heard in your study and in your research have you found ways of I don't know it's going to sound terrible but repackaging or reframing the implications so that it's not such a difficult conversation yeah I, th- I mean I, I think you're absolutely right that the this minority of outright denialists um, there's a strategic consideration here around how much time you spend trying to trying to persuade these people because you, you may not get anywhere and it may well be a waste of resources and um, you know we live in a Democracy, where decision making is done by majority, so actually, it, it's just that majority endorsement that that you need around the reality of climate change, and we already have that. So, so there is this question as to how we um, how we make that uh, majority consensus translate into action. That's yes. one of the big questions, you know. Yeah. Um, another way of putting it is this old Greek idea of, of a crazier kind of weakness of will where it seems you know what you need to do but you just you just don't quite do it and and that's the that's the puzzle and that's the puzzle of implicatory denial yes the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> so I, th- I think the the first thing and this is what I've written a bit about is that you really need to understand people's values because we all come to the question of climate change with our own political and moral and religious beliefs and our own um, wider beliefs about our place in the world and our sense of agency and so on mm. and and we really have to think about how to message um, people and how to communicate and how to persuade them mm. in a way which is responsive and respectful to the values that they actually hold and Mm -hmm. i think the long history of of climate change communication and climate change politics has been quite poor at this because it's tended to be um led by by left-wing uh parties organizations ideas and and thinkers and they've tended to advocate for climate change action through the lens of those left-wing values you know putting um, ideas of justice and equality uh, and um, 
you know, opposing domination and opposing power and opposing hierarchy yes. at the forefront of, of climate action. And while that is great for messaging to people who have the same political um, position and, and beliefs, that's a, just a useless way to communicate to people who have different values. And mm-hmm. so something I've long tried to champion is the idea of a much more diverse and pluralistic uh, climate change debate where in order to stop people denying the reality of climate change we have to frame action in ways that make sense to them and so we need to encourage uh, diverse forms of disagreement about what we do about climate change Mm. and bring people Mm. into that debate around how to act on it in order to stop people just throwing their hands up and denying it because it sounds like a socialist conspiracy. It sounds like some sort of Trojan horse that you're slipping a socialist agenda into. um, Yeah, and uh, I mean, mean, Margaret Thatcher was a classic example of this. She was trained as a chemist. She was presented with the science of climate change in the early 80s she accepted it she understood the problem she was committed to action on on it and um and eventually she she turned because she uh started to get the sense that you know the only um solutions being proposed were internationalist communitarian or collectivist um, solutions Mm. to the problem through the United Nations which she had a instinctive um, skepticism toward and and so 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 she started to adopt some of the language of of the um, American denialist movement and would quote some of the the groups uh, some of the scientists involved such as Fred Singer was a famous mm. uh, denialist and and she would quote from him and so she kind of turned there even while accepting the reality and accepting that the the, the political urgency of acting on it. So it's, it's an incredibly tragic. Uh, period of history and you know in terms of the loss of momentum uh, I remember those that speech she gave and also um, similar speeches given by George Bush senior and 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 GW Bush Bush junior uh, accepting the reality of the science committing to further study uh, and committing to reductions and things like the Kyoto program we've lost so much ground mm-hmm. Um well, we might, we we probably need to acknowledge at this point the con, the concerted effort of the oil companies and the coal industry to f- to feed this fear of change. I was about to yeah mention that. I mean, because we've have been talking about um, denial in terms of a kind of psychological phenomenon where where we um, deny the facts to ourselves, but. Another sense of denial is is practical denial. Um, so, you know, when we talk about in sport, you know, we've denied someone a try or we've denied them a goal. You know, it's not that you've you've suppressed a belief; it's that you've you've actually intervened in something happening. And this is exactly the other side of denial: um, is the concerted effort by uh, the oil companies to to deny and diminish and um, reduce the the problem. Um, there's been some really interesting research in the of, of late, um, particularly around Exxon, and you know they were 
publishing internal reports in the late 70s, um, which was accepting the reality of climate change and accepting that that was a problem and that 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 um, raised serious you know challenges to the um, business strategy going forward and they mm-hmm. engaged with the issue quite proactively all through the early 1980s working with um, scientists and universities government departments and so on Exxon was at the at the forefront of understanding the the problem but then in the in the late 80s um, around the time of an oil glut when the oil price collapsed and also as the um, UNFCCC the United Nations um, framework for grappling with the issue governments became more proactive around policy and um and Exxon very much changed its tune mm-hmm. and instead of investing in research about climate change it started investing in lobbying to prevent uh, regulation uh, started funding the sorts of think tanks that, that Thatcher was drawing on at, at the same time yeah. started funding these um, contrarian scientists like like Fred Singer um, and that continues today a recent study um was that the large, the the largest five oil and gas companies spend nearly two hundred million dollars a year on lobbying? Um, so so it's a significant effort. And again, this this is a form of denial because it, once again, it's a except it, to some extent, it's an acceptance of the reality of the problem, but a a form of suppression um, that that follows the acknowledgement of the problem. It's moved in that case from a denial to uh, an act of, well, let's call it what it is, an act of evil. It's a it's a, a deliberate act to uh, avert change. Uh, I think I, I saw um, Malcolm Turnbull um, laying into the Australian government along similar lines of uh, of uh, you know it's it's one thing to psychologically deal with the implications but to actively to go out and suppress it takes that's a, that's a new level isn't mm. it and the, and the great tragedy of it is that it's it's um it's just it's it's lost us that opportunity to have dealt with the crisis in a slow methodical and cost effective way because if we had started making those decisions around our infrastructure and our the way we plan our cities the way we um get around the our transport systems and so yes. on all of these long-term decisions yes. uh, which we could have made decades ago at very minimal cost because a lot of them are just just planning choices um and and we've lost that opportunity to make those decisions um and to provide ourselves with a with a low emissions infrastructure we've locked ourselves into a high emissions infrastructure high emissions transport systems such as our reliance on cars and so on and and that's the that's the tragedy of all of this is that it's left us in a situation which is rightly called a crisis um, now where where change has to be dramatic. Mm-hmm. It's going to have to involve um, decommissioning a lot of infrastructure um, which would have otherwise been of use. So that's a whole lot of lost value in our fixed assets. Um, a whole lot of 
Yeah, I mean, and you know, that's something that GDP doesn't capture, for instance, because it doesn't capture the value of of, of lost assets. It only captures the value of creating them. So, yes, yeah. so, so this is, I mean, that's that's the ultimate tragedy of that official denial, that practical denial. Yes, and the and the the people bearing the cost of that are are presumably not those who are you would consider the elites or or the one percent the the people that have benefited mostly from the denial is that what you're saying everybody takes a hit in different ways i mean exxon at the moment their their share prices is on a major downfall i I think partly because of this um information emerging about their denialist activities and the fact that people just don't want to be associated with those shares mm. like they don't want to be associated for tobacco which also went through a similar yes. uh, process of unearthing the denial of um, of the health effects it's and quite so a good comparison isn't it uh, the, you know it's a, it's a similar trajectory of of blatant denial of, of quite basic Yeah, and, I, and I think it was the same strategists and same strategies were used um, by those right. companies. Like, um, a, a classic strategy is just to sow, it was just to emphasise and amplify that sense of scientific uncertainty. You know, good science always has an element of uncertainty and equivocation about yes. the truth claims that it makes, but they would capitalise on that by saying, look, the scientists, uh, uh, they're, they're putting up caveats and that those caveats are more significant than they seem and so we don't need to worry about the problem mm. to, to a degree mm. in which they're encouraging us to and so and so yeah um, let's get a bit hopeful uh, because you know the implications of climate change are severe and, and in many areas unknown um, but you've done quite a lot of interesting work around forestry, for instance, and this transition from um, these marginal lands that have been difficult for farmers to make money out of because they've had to put stock on, so they've either been left to go back to scrub or they've been turned to forestry. Uh, Are you suggesting that um, a, a new model is emerging where such marginal lands actually can be commercialised and um, have a commercial benefit as as well as an environmental benefit? That all depends on the wider policy and investment environment, really. Um, I mean, it's worth keeping in mind that, that, you know, a lot of people make land use decisions not purely an expectation of financial returns and a lot of foresters that's certainly the case especially the small forest owners a lot of them do it as a as a matter of love and um, it's, yeah. it's uh, you know a labor of love in that sense that the, mm-hmm. that they love growing trees they love the they love the outcomes and they you know they plant these um specialty uh, tim- uh you know non-standard species for specialty timbers and so on just because they love creating that Mm -hmm. quality product Mm -hmm. Um, but the returns can be quite marginal Uh, the risks can be (laughs) quite significant and so it isn't strictly a a financial case that um, that makes them make that land use decision mm-hmm. um, so, so so there's an element of that and I think certainly with a lot of marginal land that also plays into um, the idea of kaitiakitanga the uh, Māori concept of um, 
you know, having a relationship to the land through Papa being literally related to the land and related mm-hmm. to those species that used to be there and having a sense of obligation to to um, return those species to, to the whenua, to the land and um, and to protect them into the future. And so again, those land use decisions might happen out of um, non-financial considerations. Uh-huh. But nevertheless, you know, finance and policy can be the great enabler and it can enable people to make the land use decisions that mm. they want to make. Um, and a lot of landowners would love to return parts of their land to to uh, forest, uh, the marginal areas, the bits that are erosion prone, which can result in costs to the property, you know, fencing costs uh, in the event of landslips yes. and yeah. degradation of rivers and so on. And so, 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 so that's really the to return to your to your question you know whether that's a viable um, economic option really um, depends on whether um, the government and the, and the wider investment environment can come up with the right policies and the right um, business models in order to to help farmers to and landowners to make those decisions that they want to make and that can involve you know bringing a lot of capital up front because forests um cost a lot of money and don't mm. necessarily make uh, well the, the timber returns are decades away and the carbon returns are s- slowly accrete over those decades and so it's um, that that's the major hurdle for forestry is that you need a lot of money up front with um, you know break even point which is a long way off into the future. But these are the precisely the kind of market mechanisms we're going to need to address the Implicatory denialism, right? Uh, you know, I, I might. Um, I'm a farmer. I understand that the environment is is changing, that climate is changing. But how am I going to maintain my business, my legacy to my children and great grandchildren, and so on? If, That's if, right. if what you're saying is, I just have to turn my land back into into forest. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I think I think that's right, and I think this. I mean, one of the points I think is well worth bringing it back to the denial conversation is that one of the best ways to get over these sort of denial mechanisms is action, you know. Looking at the problem of climate change, it is incredibly um, overwhelming and, and distressing and, and these, you know, you know, these feelings and these emotions that can sort of create a sense of dread or, or grief uh, which can be which can sort of paralyze us and 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 um, there is this thing called ecological grief. It's yes, a, it's a it's a known phenomenon. Exactly. Yeah, and that's a, that can be a um, that's a, a sort of a consequence of sitting with that denial and sitting with our you, you know that that gap between the belief in climate change and our inability to act. You know, that gives us that sense of um, of, of grief. And but but action is the best way to overcome those negative emotions and because mm-hmm. it's a way of reclaiming your agency and and um, and making the problem seem tractable you know we can't all make the large scale systems decisions that, that might you know change our energy systems and so on but we mm-hmm. can all contribute to um, the forces that make those decisions through voting and through through our consumer choices and through our um, our decisions to invest in certain 
saving schemes as opposed to others and so on so all of the you you know acting in these ways is um exactly the way to get over that sense of grief and i think you know that's what we're seeing in the in the rural areas at the moment is is that you know the pressure is being put on them to make their farming systems um more climate aligned but they're not necessarily being given the right policy tools to do that. Yes. And so that is a recipe for denial and resistance yes. and, and stress. And, uh, and and this is exactly why, you know, the book that uh, I published last year, A Careful Revolution, it was about these problems of how you help communities over these obstacles and over these humps which are in our way uh-huh. where where action is starting to gather momentum but we don't necessarily have the tools in place to mm. to enable people to make the change whether it's um you know access to new skills and new vocations or mm-hmm. new technology or or access to finance so that they can make those uh, land use changes which they're being expected to and you know we have the emissions trading scheme that's a is a very blunt tool and it um it's you know being used to change the landscape now um but some of the you know you know it tends to incentivize the planting of large scale um pinus radiata especially you know fast growing exotic monocultures yes which which um don't have social license from farmers and rural communities and uh there's also certain risks around climate adaptation because pine forests are quite vulnerable to fire yes and um and and monocultures are generally quite vulnerable to to disease uh which you know new diseases will be coming uh, our way as a consequence of the changing climate and so it certainly so employ it's, fewer people so there's potential for the gutting of rural employment certainly I, yeah <laughs> if if the processing capacity is put back in the regions actually for for log processing logs actually it comes out looking a little bit better forestry and um and and farming but yeah we we've um gutted most of that processing capacity over the last right. couple of decades yes. and so that's that's why that 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 job um uh, that job comparison doesn't look so good for forestry i can see us going down a um a rabbit another whole rabbit warren of um discussion which would be good when you think about um those rural communities and the work that you've done on on forestry is there, I'm not asking you for a silver bullet, but is there something that could be done now that would make a big difference? What for in, sh- in regards to the landscape specifically? Yes, or? yes, and, and thinking particularly the, these rural communities that are facing some quite profound questions about land use. I, 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 think, the, I think the idea of a just transition is a really good one. Um, and this is an idea that's mostly come from thinking about fossil fuel companies, um, people in the oil industry, and how to help them to shift um, into low emissions jobs. So especially they may stay within the energy sector, but they may move from the high emissions energy of of fossil fuels into the low emissions energy of of, of wind and solar and um, you know it's a matter of reskilling them so that they can go um, into these 
new technologies and and apply their same the, the engineering skills and technical skills um, towards a different outcome. And I yes. think we need to adapt. It would be very helpful to adapt that idea of a just transitions for the rural sector, um, not just agriculture but forestry as well, because because mm-hmm. there's also changes needed there. And the time we're talking, um, you know, the forestry sector and the east coast is facing you know massive disruption as a result of the coronavirus um, you know, and this is just another example of you know what a globalised world we live in and how sensitive we are to these shocks and disruptions mm. around the world a lot of forestry workers have been put off work while the um, Chinese ports aren't, aren't accepting logs and so so the idea of a just transition just really emphasises that as we change from a high emissions economy to a low emissions economy, that some people will be more vulnerable to that change than others. And we have to think about how we're going to help those people to make the change because if we don't help them, then they're going to revolt. They're going to protest. Mm. They're going to be in the streets like they are in um, France, the Gilets jaunes um, protests, which which as a result of the carbon price there. And there's, you know, rural people... Um, protesting exactly this issue that the carbon price went out and they're not being given the right tools to make the transition into into electric vehicles and so on. Yes. And the other principle of of a just transition is is just equity issues, just realising that some of the mechanisms that we use uh, to encourage a low emissions transition, they have different weights on different people. And and the gilet jaune is another example of that because, you know, carbon tax tends to be regressive. It it hits low income households harder because they spend more of their disposable income on things like fuel. Um, So they're just they they pay a disproportionate price for these sorts of mechanisms so unless you build that kind of um, responsiveness into your policy you're just you know the government and um and others are just leaving themselves vulnerable to to creating these sort of backlashes and and that's to some extent what we're seeing in the rural sector in New Zealand with the Fifty Shades of Green protest and and have in the past with the um resistance to the um the agricultural greenhouse gas levy, which was better known as the fart tax, one of the um, one of the more successful uh, political reframings of, of contemporary New Zealand political history. It, it certainly was easy to remember. So, so many things to address, uh, but how important it is for us to find this just transition uh, and help people overcome the implications of the of the glaring scientific fact of climate change and um, you know we wish you all the best with <laughs> developing that David thanks for joining us cheers Vincent thanks for listening to this climate business I hope you enjoyed the program there are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website thisclimatebusiness.com I'm Vincent Herringer and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show email me vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com or find me on twitter V Herringer. That's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week in Nohora.